Hey there, and welcome back to Crypto Clarified, Investing in the Truth. This is a podcast series where we come together to discuss the most captivating headlines and trends in the crypto space. My name is Benjamin Dean. I'm Director and Wisdom Tree's Digital Assets Team. And today I'm joined, fortunately, by the one and only Jason Guthrie, Head of Digital Asset Product at Wisdom Tree. I'm also joined by the co-founder and managing partner of Omnichain Capital, David Adaman. Uh, social media shout outs before we get things underway. You can always find me at Benjamin Dean on the Bird app. You can also find Jason at Guthrie Fi. Join the wait list if you are in the United States. Wisdom Tree Prime, wisdomtreeprime.com. Join the wait list. You won't be disappointed. For today's episode, we're going to be talking about two broad topics. The first of them is around what's happening in US banking and how it relates to crypto. And then the second is uh, around thinking about valuations in the crypto space. What are the kind of metrics and ways to think about what drives utility and value for certain coins and tokens? Before we get into the subject matter, though, I have to give the usual shout out to James and Sam in compliance, because nobody loves compliance more than Benjamin C. Dean. Before I begin, I need to state the following to clarify the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Wisdom Tree and Omnichain Capital and are subject to change. Anything we present in this podcast is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, nor as investment or tax advice. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities and reliance upon them is at the sole discretion of the listener. Please remember past performance is no indication of future results. Now onto the fun stuff. It's been a big week, US banking, crypto. Uh, Jason's here with me. Always a pleasure. Jason, how are you holding up? All things considered, I'm, I'm doing pretty well, I think. Are you highly liquid? <laughs> well, I'm born than SVB, but... Uh... Anybody is more liquid than them, and uh, it's been a huge week. But before we dive into all of that, we have a very special guest today, David Adaman is with us. David, how are you doing? I am great. Thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, usually when we do these kinds of episodes, we like uh, our guests, we introduce themselves. David, tell us a little bit about how you got into the space, what you do with Omnichain Capital, and and how you work in the crypto space. Uh, great. Yeah, no. Um, so I'm the co-founder and managing partner of Omnichain Capital, which is a liquid token investment fund that we launched in July 2021. And I think the best way to think about it is um, it's a hedge fund that owns early stage VC assets. Um, but the assets are kind of a, a hybrid of equity and commodity. Uh, we're very much, you know, long-term oriented. We don't trade. All of our price targets are 2030. So very much kind of the VC mindset. I have a background in traditional finance. I spent 10 years uh, primarily covering technology companies. I started in investment banking, covering networking infrastructure, which we'll uh, talk to later in the episode. Um, then I moved to the buy side um, across a variety of company phases. Um, I spent time in uh, venture capital, private equity, hedge fund, um, and each phase had kind of different considerations and methods to assess 
investment quality, and you know, I, I leverage a lot of um, a lot of those frameworks um, to help inform kind of the, the omni-chain process and overall strategy. Um, and how did I get into crypto? Um, I don't remember the first time I heard of it, uh, but I do remember I I thought Bitcoin was a scam <laughs> um, for the first couple of years. It wasn't until 2014 when um, I was at a growth equity fund and a peer was pitching Bitcoin to the fund to buy. And he wanted me to, to check it to check it out. Shout out Ben Schlang for getting me into crypto. And it kind of immediately clicked for me. Um, I have a networking infrastructure background, as I said, and I finally saw Bitcoin and crypto more generally as you know, this kind of disruptive technology to data networking and not just not a currency looking to displace the dollar. So um, that's when it kind of fell into place for me immediately, you know, fell down the proverbial rabbit hole, got a Coinbase account that night, started investing. Um, but it was pretty much uh, just like a personal hobby of mine for a while. Um, got into Ethereum, kind of followed along. And it wasn't really until 2020, 2021, uh, when I thought, you know, things, the industry became more, less theoretical and more actually real with DeFi Summer and you know, people are actually using these applications and um, just a lot of things fell into place where I felt, you know, my, you know, I had the relevant experience and background and kind of vision to, to put a um, professional fund together um, in the space, uh, kind of thought that, you know, the space was kind of lacking it. And um, so, uh, you know, end of 2020, early 2021 is when um, my co-founder and I uh, decided to, to launch the fund. Nice. Everyone's always got an interesting story about how they get into the space, and I love it. <laughs> I thought it was a scam. Everyone starts <laughs> that way. Not everyone. I, I saw, I, I can write code and read code. Like, sure. I know it's, it's sure. not rubbish, but uh fascinating nice one so we're gonna have a great episode uh david you come uh, to join us at an interesting time in the sense that like from when you started and when we started the world's totally different now and uh we're kind of grappling with that difference uh for those who are listening and watching it's the 16th of march uh and so the the preceding week has been one of volatility uh and it, we want to clarify things. That's why it's called Crypto Clarify. Uh, so, Jason, we've got the fortune of having you here today. Can you explain, in to the extent you can, the events of the past week with U.S. banks, how it relates to crypto, and how it doesn't relate to crypto? It's a big quote. Like, there's a lot there, right? And uh, I would say that it's it's also not just us banks anymore is it like credit swiss got bailed out in the last 48 hours yeah, which absolutely is how many bailouts is that for them now three Least. i've lost count yeah uh, it's getting a bit ridiculous so look the, the the long story short is that the narrative starts with a series of banks uh signature uh silvergate SBV have gone out of business in the us um now a lot of the, the narrative around this got heavily linked to crypto because these were banks that were in some way, shape or form involved with crypto, right? Uh, some had like SBV in particular, Silicon Valley Bank, for those that don't have the acronym, um, did a lot of like their primary business was banking services for VC funded startups. So 
a lot of companies that were involved in crypto were kind of holding their, their cash with um with silicon valley bank i think the big link into crypto for both signature and silvergate was their involvement with a firm called circle who are essentially the issuer of usdc one of the major 50 billion dollar in asset stablecoin that sort of has underpinned a lot of the interactions in uh in the crypto space is nominally the con- the uh syndicate that that puts out USDC uh, includes Coinbase as well. So it's sort of very well-known, very plugged into to the major players in that space. And those banks sort of formed a lot of the on-off ramp for that crypto. Now, the failure of the banks themselves really doesn't seem to be linked to like crypto natively in, in sort of any way, shape or form. There is a tangential link in that like someone like Silicon Valley Bank that had a lot of, you know, cash for crypto startups and that space has definitely been under pressure and the last nine months this leads to sort of withdrawals coming out of um of the bank it leads to sort of less vc funding so less cash flowing in so that cycle of deposits and withdrawals is starting to skew very heavily toward uh withdrawals but you know that was also coupled with the assets that these guys held on their balance sheet uh devaluing in the face of like interest rate rises so like anyone that knows how you structure like a fractional reserve bank as a business is like you take in deposits, you lend out 90%, you hold 10% in reserves meant to be very liquid, stable, like called regulatory capital, right? Most of this is held in government bonds and because interest rates have been zero and yields have been so low, people hold longer dated bonds. That's what they've done for the last 10 years. Interest rates go up, the face value of those bonds goes down. If you couple that with money being drawn out for the reasons I outlined earlier, you get a confluence of factors that is commonly known as bank run um just where the the amount of uh sort of capital that they have on hand is drawn down by either the assets falling and the deposits puts them below their requirements to hold regulatory capital and income the regulators and that's essentially what happens it's like a mechanical failure of like how this stuff can flow through not that anything necessarily disappeared or completely blew up and none of it was driven by like speculating on crypto which is the narrative i've seen really really pervasively pushed on like Twitter and other social media is that these guys had something to do with crypto. They were taking really risky bets and now they're out of business. Just isn't what happened. Listeners and viewers, you'll never get a shorter explanation of what went wrong than Jason's just given. But David, uh, you've been watching this. I assume you don't live under a rock. So I assume you've been watching this and, uh, how have you seen these things play out? It could be around your own business, the folks around you, uh what is happening or what has happened over the last week in your world yeah so in the world of uh the investment community um in the u.s specifically uh signature and silvergate were the top uh banks for for institutions in crypto um, including major funds so omnichain included um we uh we were still are uh, customers of Signature. So, um, you know, moving moving banks and a lot of people are kind of scrambling to to move over their funds. What I will say is there's a lot of um, the, the narrative on at least like crypto Twitter is that, you know, uh, the U.S. is totally shut off from, from on off ramps. Um, you know, funds in the U.S. are screwed. All the companies that, that need a bank are, are screwed. Uh, I, I kind of completely disagree with that. There are a lot of 
other regional banks that are t are using this opportunity to kind of build uh, business. You know, we're entering a recession potentially. You know, everyone wants business, so um, so the, there are a lot of options for funds uh, like Omnichain, but also just companies to get banked in the U.S. Uh, so wanted to put that out there, but uh, but yeah, it's a disrupt. It's, it's a disruption for sure, um, and definitely frustrating, but not the end of the world. That's an excellent clarification there, because I am reading people going out there and saying that now all the crypto companies are unbanked, uh, and that's simply not true. It's disruptive, as you say. Uh, yeah, I mean, life is disruptive. There are problems. There are risks you've got to manage, and banking for a lot of crypto companies, inverted commas, has been a problem for years. So they have plan Bs and Cs and Ds and whatnot, and uh, those plans are being exercised this week. I'm sorry to hear you have to deal with kind of the, the disruption caused by Signature Bank's demise. Uh, but at the same time, I'm glad to hear that you and I know a lot of other folks out there have got uh, backup plans and, and they're executing them. Um, yep. Before we move on, I mean, uh, I, I don't want to uh, dwell too much on this topic for this episode, but I do want to give everyone a chance to, to say what they think as closing thoughts. I know my closing thoughts would be or are that there is a narrative that is out there right now, which is that crypto collapsed these banks, and that is simply not correct. It's not correct. It's been the case for a very long time that a number of banks, not just in the US, but globally, uh, do not have assets on their books that are worth what they write on paper. It's, it's that simple. And what's fascinating to me is that if we think back 14 to 15 years ago when Bitcoin's created in the aftermath of the second bailout uh, of UK banks, the whole idea was you don't need a bank, basically. And to me, it's just fascinating to watch this process whereby uh, traditional finance and the crypto space have merged to the point where this week, if anything, it's dysfunction in the traditional banking sector that's disrupting companies that operate on top of crypto and inverted commas uh, infrastructure. Like <laughs> the shoes on the other foot in a way, in a way that I expected, but I just find so striking this week. Jason, uh, are there any other kind of takeaways or things that you think listeners should uh, be aware of, given where we are on the 16th of March, 2023? Yeah, I, look, I think we can reframe the the way kind of people are talking about this, right? You, there's a lot of misunderstandings out there, right? People really don't get what drives these. They really don't get the way banks are structured, how capital works, the function that it plays in in kind of the economy quite frankly and the the realistic assessment of it is is that bank values are somewhat impossible to avoid right you try to have a, a ecosystem that is sufficiently diversified you have strong regulations a lot of transparency on what they do you have like basel three requirements these should be enforced by local regulators you you want an ecosystem that is robust but like we all know it's going to fail and like that's what the fdic exists for in the us everyone pays in fees over time so there's somewhat of like 
what's essentially an insurance fund or a clearing pot for banks when they do blow up so someone can step in because like there is a tacit acknowledgement that in the system, the way that it's structured right now for them to do their role, which is facilitating like capital to continue moving through the system. That's what fractional reserve is meant for. Like deposits come in and it doesn't just go dead. They'll lend it out to a mortgage, to a car loan, to a business, to some trade financing, whatever. And that keeps the velocity of money that keeps the cycle going. And like velocity of money is, is like one of the things that you look at it for, for the health of an economy. That's their functional role in the place. When that grinds up, it grinds up. I think this dovetails like really nicely to what we should be talking about with blockchain. Crypto was a broad topic. Decentralized finance is like, is there a better way to plumb this together? Is there a way that we can separate out like safekeeping and transferability from something like maturity transfer and lending in a way that makes it structurally more robust than what we have today? A reliance on you know, a small, a low double digit number of institutions to perform this facility and have a very like horizontally integrated business. Can we find a more efficient way to do that? Can we break that up? And I think that, you know, introduce more competition, introduce more consumer centricity, uh, reduce the number of choke points, reduce the amount of rent seeking that, that happens in the system. I think that's what we can, that's what we should be talking about with DeFi and crypto as an infrastructure and with the backdrop of like the bank of banking system starting to seize up and failures, that's the perfect backdrop to talk about it. Like what, what's its value as infrastructure for a financial services system that we can hopefully rebuild from like first principles. David, do you have any uh, ideas to add on top? Yeah. Um, so the, uh, the narrative of crypto uh, causing the bank runs um, is, you know, very, it's frustrating. It's also kind of laughable, but I, I think the connection is drawn from uh, back in November, the, the, uh, the implosion of, of FTX and uh, subsequent kind of um, legal proceedings that kind of led regulators to uh, Silvergate, uh, who was their bank. And, you know, they're kind of looked into what, how much they knew, were they facilitating, uh, were they basically enabling this illegal activity? And then you got a lot of short sellers to jump on that. Um, they were basically an easy target because they were just a badly run, badly run bank that happened to have this connection with FTX. And then once um, you know there was more scrutiny, um, there you know there was uh, more panic. You know people started to withdraw, and the bank run there started to happen. And then the duration mismatch became more apparent, which then um, you know got people to think, wait, like maybe other banks kind of have this issue too. Uh, which obviously led this led to this cascading um, bank run event that we're still uh, in the midst of. Um, and so, you know, I think everyone, it's easy to say, oh, you know, FTX, all this bad stuff, crypto is like, it's, it's eating away at our traditional banking system when that's not really, um, really what's happening. You know, that the depositor is not the counterparty risk. Right. If you put money in a bank, like you should be able to get it out. And especially as like an institution, like when I sign up for a bank, you have to you tell them how much will typically be in the account, have what the money flows will look like, um, you know, so they can put it into their internal model. So they have an idea of what um, inflows and outflows should be and, and how much liquidity they should have. And so it's kind of on them to kind of uh, understand, you know, the um, 
rising rates on on kind of their assets, but also on how it would impact their uh, customers needing cash, et cetera. So to blame it on uh, crypto or tech or whatever, I mean, everyone needs cash these days. So I don't know how you blame it on a particular um, sector, but like that's just like the wrong way to, to look at the problem. And unfortunately, you have people in Congress pushing this narrative, you have all, all the press pushing this narrative. And so it kind of just becomes truth um, in society. Yeah, I don't know if it's lazy thinking or it's uh, willful negligence or uh, malicious stuff. But look, I, I appreciate both of your views there. You've helped clarify the issues and explain to people what is and is not going on. And, and that's more than you can say for a lot of folks out there. I do want to kind of pivot our discussion now, though, to something that's more substantive, uh, because we don't like being dragged along behind the car of kind of mainstream narratives. It, it's distracting, quite frankly. What I would like us to talk about today is uh, the differences between um, the, they're almost layers in, in this kind of inverted commas crypto space. You know, you've got this infrastructure layer, you've got a layer two, which is around like scaling and rollups, and then you've got a layer three, which is applications. David, we've got you here today, and I know that you think about this a lot. Can you kind of run listeners through the concepts that I've just laid out and also concepts that on your side you've got to help people understand a little bit more about this idea that a lot of these networks are infrastructure that can have applications built on top of them. Yeah, no, um, happy to happy to talk about this subject. Uh, OmniChain focuses primarily on the infrastructure layer, so this is definitely um, what we think about uh, every day. But um, taking just taking a step back, um, crypto, Web three, digital assets. I kind of think of it all as this, you know, different parts of the same thing which is, as I alluded to before, kind of this breakthrough in data networking technology. Um, you know, how data moves, how it's processed and stored. That's, that's what crypto is. It's basically disruptive technology for uh, data networking is how I think about it. And why is that such a big opportunity? Um, because everything runs on the data network today. The financial system, you know, healthcare information, government databases, all, you know, communications, streaming, everything. Um, and so, and all these data networks today have similar architectures. They all you know, require electricity, have hardware and software that work together as kind of this base layer to move, process and store data. Um, and so, you know, you kind of have uh, what I call networking infrastructure, um, which is the base layer. And then you have applications that uh, run on top of that. Um, which are your, um, you know, software, websites, you know, the ATM interface, basically any, any, anytime you interface with, with something digitally, that's kind of the, the software application layer. Um, and the reason that, uh, that Web3 is so, or, or crypto is so, I think, disruptive is that it allows um, composability, basically, Applications can be built on each other. Value can be um, exchanged, can be stored, it can be uh, you know lent out, and you don't need to trust anyone. You don't need an intermediary. And basically, the the value there is that you just get new use cases. You have you know three applications stacked together, and you have this whole new functionality. So that's how I kind of think of 
uh, value coming from crypto um, it is the utility from this network, this new paradigm of networking infrastructure. And so, um, and so like the, the omni-chain kind of thesis is that the, the applications, the, the killer apps, the, the use cases that are going to be adopted by the masses um, are going to be novel to Web3 and, and something that we're probably not even thinking about today, just like how Web2 uh, kind of brought, uh, um, brought on social networks, Uber, Airbnb, all these new possibilities um, that, uh, that read and write kind of networking enable along with mobile and, and, and better kind of uh, communication infrastructure. Uh, and to that point, we think a better, um, a better bet is just on the infrastructure layer that will power whatever use cases end up winning. Um, if you think about it, the top, the top use cases today are DeFi and um, NFTs. And if you think about the top protocols, they all use the same, um, what I, infrastructure, middleware, basically general purpose uh, technology that powers their applications. And so you can kind of see that no matter what ends up winning, as long as you're in the um, in the important uh, infrastructure, uh, you know you, you will have a better chance of success making it to 2030, etc. Good. You've just explained something that I spend way too much time trying to convey to people. And that is that if you kind of take the long arc of human history and you think about how people record, store, and transmit information, uh, you see step changes over the course of that history. And there are multiple step changes, but the one I like to use is the printing press, which is basically like you've just made it so people don't have to manually input information, write it down essentially onto some device paper is, is the device at that point. And then you're able to kind of print it at will using a machine and the order of magnitude increase in productivity you get in re reproducing information, it goes exponential. So, and then you've got to distribute the information, you know, how do you make money off, off books and things like that. But it changes the whole kind of value distribution system in a similar way here, where it's like, you have shared databases that people can write to and it's cryptographically secured. Uh, you just now got like kind of moments in time that are captured and are transmitted globally. Uh, almost, well, it's not instantaneous because it moves at the speed of light along uh, fiber optic cables, but that's beside the point. It's fascinating. Jason, you're here with us. Does uh, David's kind of thesis there hold luster or? I, no, I think it does. Like we've talked a lot about uh, the infrastructure of, of like value transmissions, the thing I'm very focused on, right? The financial services uh, elements of it. So I think we're kind of generally all in agreement there. The thing that I'm interested in from David's perspective is like where he thinks the value is getting or going to be accrued kind of at the end of this process as it works through whatever use case finance or otherwise but I as I sort of understand it your your position is more that it's going to be accrued at sort of the protocol network infrastructure level in in this iteration versus like web 2 where the pro the guys that built the protocol may 
nothing out of it. And everyone that built a web app, Facebook, Netflix, whatever, made a fortune. So you're, I, I believe you, you're sort of asserting that it's going to be accrued at a completely different level this time. Uh, so, and this goes uh, back to the, the, um, the FAT protocol, FAT application kind of argument. I, I kind of think it's the wrong way of looking at it. I think, I think applications will, will capture value. I think the infrastructure that powers them will capture value. Um, you capture the incremental utility you give people. So to the extent that an application does something better, that you know, Uniswap has the most liquidity than you know versus all the other um, DEXs out there. So you know it is value, um, and the market has shown you that with a, a token that doesn't do anything, but it still you know has has a high value based on just the the volume that goes to to the DEX. Um, in terms of you know comparing it to Web two, if there was um, you know a, a protocol uh, token for for the internet, I'm sure it would be worth more than um, saying or whatever, um, I, and they would be worth less because they have to pay tax to it. So, um, I, I do think, you know, the, the, the comparison is a little, uh, apples to oranges. Um, but also, uh, to that point, um, I, I do think that, that a lot of the, um, in terms of stickiness, I do think the lower layers of the the network are stickier, harder to to switch. Whereas like an app can be easily forked, and then you know you can offer a bunch of incentives, and then you could steal you know a bunch of customers. You know if you're if you're moving from Ethereum to and you actually you're seeing this with DYDX. If you're moving from Ethereum to to let's say Cosmos, it's taking them a year to reconfigure. Uh, the code and it's just it's a headache whereas um so the bottom layer being stickier also i i would almost kind of um the you know the um how you mentioned uh jason the uh the uh the apps uh getting all the value i think that um you could almost look at ethereum like a platform like facebook um, it has, it's kind of its own wall garden. There is interoperability, but it's better when it's, um, when it's within the Ethereum ecosystem. And then you have all these, you know, acquisitions or just microservices that they built on top. So I'd say that the, these ecosystems are more akin to, um, you know, the, the internet giants that we have today. So I do think the, the, the comparisons are a little, um, apples to oranges. So is, is the way to think about it that the value that you believe is going to be accrued is driven by like the throughput and therefore the transaction fees, like that, that is derived by those that maintain the network, Ethereum in this case, equivalent to Facebook, that's people put in the effort to maintain that network, maintain its security process, transactions, clip a fee, and that's how you'll see the value getting accrued. Right. So this is, um, this is kind of a point of contention on crypto Twitter and investors I talk uh, to, um, you know, thinking about uh, how to value these networks, um, you know, why are tokens, why do tokens even have value, et cetera. You know, if you look at Ethereum, a lot of people and investors will, will look at the fees that they generate. Um, and 
the problem with that is that you know users pay fees to use Ethereum, so it's kind of like a company in revenue. Um, and then you know you can stake your your token, and so you can get uh, you know, yield um, from from the from the ecosystem but in reality the revenue gets burned so it goes to no one and uh you know not everyone stakes so not everyone get you know it's not like equity where everyone has a, a claim cash flow you have to stake and the stakers they get their um you know compensation from inflation so it's not even directly from the revenue they're just not losing uh, out basically right and um you know, be, because uh, the burn, because the issuance is, is, is neutral today, you are technically gaining um, equity ownership in, in the network. You know, it's a net positive. So, but, um, but, and then people, uh, you know, a lot of people will, will value based on the yields and then you, you know, you, um, you assume a certain price, et cetera. But, you know, I always contend that, you know, it doesn't matter what the yield is. If you're getting a million percent APY on, on ETH, it's still not worth anything unless ETH itself has value. And why does ETH itself have value? Uh, because you need it to access the network. So the, the, the value of Ethereum is linked um, directly to the demand to use it. So I think about it more like a... A currency in a country. Um, the more going on in a country, the more opportunity for developers to make money, the more opportunity for consumers to have a better experience, whatever, uh, the more value in that block in that scarce block space, um, which is represented by the ETH token. So what you've just described is similar to what I say when I sit down with institutional investors and they say, Why ether? And I go, Well, do you put petrol in your car? Or for the listeners in the US, you put gas in your car. They say, yes. I say, so what does that do? Oh, it makes the car go forward. Uh, so what's the price of oil, right? It, it's kind of a derivative of that utility you get. I mean, we use oil for plastics and all kinds of different use cases. But in this instance, we're saying, you are, correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying that the, the value of Ether is contingent upon demand for Ether in order to do things on the Ethereum network, right? I, I would say that's the inherent value. There's obviously speculative, all that stuff on top of that. That would be the inherent value, yeah. Because the reason I say that, and we didn't cover it earlier on, but part of the reason we were talking about collapses in US banks uh, and why it matters for crypto is because Jason mentioned USDC circles stablecoin is uh, a lot of it's transmitted on different networks. One of the networks is Ethereum. And uh, when they have problems in terms of their deposits, it creates problems for the USDC token, basically. So, you know, what is one big use case or reason people want Ether is to send you tokenized US dollars. Uh, from cell phone to cell phone or computer to computer or, or however you can use it, right? So that is a very clear use case and source of demand and, and one that is growing. It's come out of not quite nowhere, but um, is very, very clear. What, what are the other then use cases or sources of utility for Ether in your mind? Or, and I'll give you a bit of extra space to discuss here, 
Ethereum is one of many networks of that infrastructure layer. Uh, what are the other sources of utility and reasons people would want to have and use these cryptocurrencies? Yeah. So, I mean, just starting with Ethereum, uh, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a general purpose um, smart contract platform, uh, which is now, you know, scaling with these L2s, as you mentioned. Um, so uh, it'll be able to, um, we think, we hope in the, in the future, it'll be able to facilitate pretty much any, most use cases. So, um, you know, stablecoin payments, but you know, to the extent um, that we can get into to the other kind of middleware infrastructure that I, that I um, that I look at, but uh, you know, I think there is a lot of uh, opportunity. I actually, you know, going back to the stablecoin um, use case, I actually don't think that uh, consumers will really care about using stablecoins for payments unless they use the stablecoin for something else. So let's say, um, and this is a really cool idea. Let's say I just want to buy treasuries, right? Um, and so I'm yielding 4%, whatever it is now. Um, but then, so it's kind of like my bank account, but then I can also use that to, to pay for stuff. And so, um, so I'm getting yield, it's in the account. I can, I can use it to pay for stuff, um, automation on the back end. But that would be cool. And then you link it with your equities and, and just you have all of your net worth kind of together in one place, easily transferable, easily you know, used as leverage. Um, you know, let's say you want to buy something. Like, that sounds familiar. That, that sounds like very familiar. Sign up for the waitlist of Wisdom Tree Prime. Uh, no affiliation. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't really see the, the value in these kind of like individual, um, microservices. It's gotta be the whole picture that kind of makes it all, um, differentiate, really differentiates it from anything that could be built today. And then, um, you know, on the, uh, on the kind of the infrastructure side of things, uh, you know, something I look at. A lot is decentralized compute, meaning, um, so taking a step back, Ethereum is, you know, this, you know, world computer that, you know, versus Bitcoin, which did nothing, Ethereum can execute smart contracts. So it can be programmed. And so, you know, there is compute in it because uh, Ethereum nodes are purposely kept pretty, you know, cheap and relatively cheap and simple the capacity for compute is actually very limited to just simple uh, code execution. If you want anything, you know, like uh, uh, anything dynamic, anything that needs uh, data processing, uh, you know, VR, AR, um, AI, you know, requiring a lot of GPUs, you're going to need a lot more compute. And today that's done on centralized servers. Um, the decentralized compute uh, providers are uh, enabling basically, you know, you can execute something on chain, have an Oracle dis distribute it to a trust minimized compute network that's run by, you know, peer to peer. So it's has the same properties um, as a blockchain and then returns the output through the Oracle back, back on chain. And so you, you could actually do instead of just composability at the 
smart contract level, you could have composability at the compute level, which then gets interesting because you could start to build like full applications on top of each other. So whether it's like, um, you know, VR, you can build worlds that actually interact together, even if they're, they're separate programs. And, you know, there's something I think about a lot. I don't even know what's going to be developed from this, but I just know that, you know, in DeFi summer, there was a new idea every other week. Um, and the amount of innovation when you're building on top of each other is kind of uh, unprecedented uh, in terms of software development. So uh, I think it'll be exciting. I think there'll be a lot of experimentation, um, but kind of the crux of the, uh, of the value is just how it doesn't matter if I'm on, you know, you know, Apple doesn't really work with PC and then, you know, different phones don't really work together, um, et cetera. Uh, you know, Windows is different from uh, iOS, all, all this stuff, you know, their wall, their wall gardens, they want to keep their consumers there. If everything kind of worked together in a trustless way that was safe, um, I think a lot of interesting applications come out of it. You've just been deploying a word that maybe has lost people, composability. Can you spell out very clearly in the context you were just explaining how composability across layers is something that's worth, it's, it's worthwhile? Yeah, so composability is uh, basically the ability to build, um, to have code, to have software uh, built on top of other software. So. You can kind of think of it. Um, I, I don't. I don't use. Uh, I think it was a Vine thing. I don't use TikTok, but um, you, you you can you can do duets with with. You can basically like take a video and then make your own video on top of it, and then people you know kind of keep doing it, and it ends up being kind of like this new thing that's kind of actually really funny and, and interesting, and creative. The same thing can be applied to um, to software where you build maybe like. Um, you know, this, this cool, you know, DEX, it, it, um, trustless um, exchange, and then you build, uh, you know, a, a yield farm, and, and then you build kind of this yield, uh, um, you know, you have liquid staking derivatives. And basically, each piece can be de developed by different teams. And let's say it's on Ethereum to make it, uh, to make it simple. But, you know, it, it opens up use cases like flash loans, which is you can like, um, within a sec, within, um, you know, a millisecond, uh, basically borrow a ton of money, um, as long as it's returned at the end of the smart contract, uh, which, you know, just opens up a lot of, a lot of new use cases that weren't possible before. To, Jay to Jason, are you, are you composable? <laughs> How composable are you? Look. This idea of composability is a, uh, I think, a really strong one. Like the idea that if you've built a system from sort of first principles with a commonality and an innate uh, integratability with what's kind of come before and after, like that kind of compatibility, I think, is going to be really powerful. Like I always look at this from a, a financial services perspective because that's that's what I'm working on, right? And I think what you're talking about, David, is like, you know, a system that is more interconnected has less choke points uh can build on top of itself as opposed to needing to completely rebuild itself with every new entrant to the market who's got a new tech stack 
who then you know needs to spend half of every day just reconciling spreadsheets against other institutions but the efficiency and stability of that system and how innovative it's going to be able to be should just be an order of magnitude higher than than what we've got today i mean to kind of bring this full circle back to uh what we were talking about at the start with like banks and failures this like the, the big reason that a bank value is such a, a big deal is that they sit at a crucial choke point of how value interacts in the current system one that was built in a much more interconnected way and allowed like the componentry of a given service to be like composed of a series of micro things that were made and maintained by a variety of people the robustness of that system the number of individual choke points it has just goes through the floor and so this idea of a, a lot of people working in an, an efficient specialized way that can be interconnected in an infinitely configurable number of ways like that's just more robust than what we've got today that's super compelling so i hope listeners have taken this away like the, the first thing was around uh what is and isn't happening with the u.s banking and now somewhat global banking second here that word composability i know developers use it and they know exactly what it means um it's not intended for a general audience but this idea of kind of interoperability it's almost a standard it's stuff that folks run with so they don't have to to use an english kind of phrase reinvent the wheel every time has got value and david from what i gather your whole thesis is basically that people are going to settle on an infrastructure a common infrastructure we already know and we don't have time unfortunately to go about ethereum virtual machine kind of as a, a de facto standard but Everyone's starting to settle on a set of standards, and and your whole thing is that the, the value will accrue at that level. Uh, that's that's very different to what a lot of folks think when they look at the space and they say, "Oh, it's all dog money and gambling online." Uh, very good clarification and insight there. We are unfortunately coming up on time, um, so this is the moment here at the end. I usually ask folks what they're looking at in the the near future far future david let's start with you what, what's got your attention where do you think things are going what is interesting to you because in that way you can convey it to the listeners who then can keep their eyes on those things yeah so you know kind of big picture um thinking where we are today and where uh you know how do we get to mass adoption um I think there are three kind of main things that are um, or categories that uh, that that are kind of uh, preventing um, mass adoption today. The first being uh, relevancy of, of products. I think most you know you look at NFTs, which are you know today mainly um, you know art or, or profile pictures, and then DeFi is mainly you know these digital assets that ninety nine point nine percent of the world doesn't care about. So to, to, to have more relevant products, I think you need, um, you know, real world assets, whatever you want to call it, tokenization of, um, you, know, act, you know, things in the physical world um, on chain. So um, stable coins being, being the first adaptation of this. But once you have kind of these more relevant products for people, people will, uh, more people will be interested in actually, you know, using it. Um, and so that's one thing, just having more relevant products for people. Um, so, so definitely watching the, the real, um, the RWA uh, uh, space. 
Um, secondly, the, the usability of, of all these products is pretty, pretty rough. You know, the wallets today, um, you know, whether it's like, you know, you have to sign every tra transaction, you need to, you know, keep, um, keep your, your, uh, you know, the 12 words or 24 words, um, in, in case you, you, uh, lose your password. Um, it's just very, uh, clunky and, and not like, even I like hate using a lot of these applications. So, uh, you know, this new kind of, uh, technology of account abstraction, which basically just automates a lot of stuff and makes it easier for users to use applications like we're used to in web two. Uh, so, so just the development of, of wallets and applications that have account abstraction, I think will be a step function in, in terms of, uh, adoption of, of these applications. And then obviously the last category, uh, is, is clearly legislation. Um, you know, that's been kind of the cloud overhanging the industry forever. Uh, obviously, you know, with a lot of the banking stuff, uh, today, but, uh, in terms of like actionable, um, legislation this year, we should get some sort of stable coin legislation in the U S which would be, um, huge if, if, you know, obviously if, if done right. Um, and then, you know, but in general, we need, we need a, you know, comprehensive new kind of set of rules for digital assets because they're not equity and they're not commodities. They have their own, they have a lot of nuanced differences and Congress just needs to get their acts together and put together, you know, legislation because clearly what we have in place isn't working. Jason, do you have any addendums to, to that? No, I agree with the legislation piece completely. Um, I mean, look, what am I looking at? Uh, bank solvency, obviously, um, I, I think is a big topic. But I think, you know, really this this whole piece has just underlined the need to kind of keep working on what we're working on. And I think this concept of like, how can we decouple the ideas of safekeeping and savings from uh, sort of like the fractional reserve system and lending and being an unsecured creditor of a financial institution, I think like we can come up with a better model than that. So that's DeFi. Stable coins are a big part of that. This just, you know, makes me want to work harder at all of that stuff. Well, there we go, folks. We're out of time, but I appreciate all those views indeed. It's uh, may you live in interesting times. There's never a shortage of interesting things to talk about. Thank you very much to both of you for clarifying the topics today. I hope listeners found it useful. Uh, David, if people want to find you on the interwebs, where do they find you? I mean, uh, probably easiest just to Google my name. I'm pretty active on Twitter, <laughs> um, LinkedIn. Uh, my DMs are always open. Also on Substack, uh, right under Omnichain Observations. Um, but um, <clears throat> always looking to, to connect with other investors in the space or builders in the space. Um, and, you know, for any more information on the fund, you know, feel free to DM me on whatever, um, platform. There you go. David Adaman, folks, you can DM, DM him. It's open. And, uh, if you're in the United States and, uh, you want to know what saving, investing and spending in the same place is, you can join the wait list, wisdomtreeprime.com. Do it. You'll like it. You can find me at Benjamin Dean on the Bird app and Jason's at Guthrie Fi. As a reminder, if anybody wants us to cover any specific topics in future episodes, 
Or to find out more information, you can email us on the snail mail option, cryptoclarified.wilsontree.com. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you have an excellent day.